I'm Lori Campbell, and I'm here to read from the NIV version, Philemon chapter 1, 4 through 16. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. No doubt you have heard the adage, big gifts come in small packages. Heard that phrase before? Uh, it seems to be uh, no more appropriately um, attributed to this gift uh, when a guy gets down on his knee with a tiny little package that has a very, very expensive ring in it and proposes to his future bride. Tiny package, really expensive gift, right? Not a big package, but expensive. It seems to me that there are certain books in the New Testament and in the Old that are like that. They're tiny packages, big gift. And Philemon strikes me as one of those books. Very small. It's not the smallest book in the Bible. Actually, it's the third smallest book in the Bible. So the first, if you count by words, the first smallest book of the Bible is actually Third John. Second in order is Second John in terms of that claim to being small. And the third is Philemon. And then you jump into the Old Testament to a book called Obadiah. One thing that's interesting about many of the epistles that Paul writes, but especially about this one, is that there are details we would like to know, right? Things that are missing, things that Paul didn't tell us in the letter. And if you ever study New Testament scholarship, as uh, those of us who do ministry often do, you, you will find that New Testament scholars will frequently say, oh, it's just a shame that we don't have this information or that information. And after a while of reading this for 35 years, I've come to the conclusion that sometimes it just sounds like whining. You know, oh, why don't they give us more information? So what I want to say to all the New Testament scholars, if you're one of them, and to you if you're not, is... Hey, lower your expectations. You're reading somebody else's mail, okay? <laughs> In other words, the letter was written to somebody, and we get the privilege of learning from it. 
We don't have to have all the details, but we have enough to make sense of it and to really learn from it. This letter is distinctively different, not just because it's small, but because it reads like such a personal letter. It reads like such a personal letter because of the way it opens. Paul routinely opens his letters by saying something like, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He uses the title. In this letter, he doesn't do that. He opens by saying, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. To my friend Philemon. He's telling you right up front what the letter is going to be like. It's a very personal letter to one person about one issue. So who was Philemon? Philemon apparently was a wealthy Christian that probably lived in Colossia. We're piecing together details, but it seems likely. He was a wealthy Christian who was known for his hospitality. Notice the reference to how many of the saints he had refreshed. As a wealthy Christian, and not all by any means were wealthy, in the first century, he would have had a much larger estate and a house. It's likely he hosted plenty of events at his house and refreshed people. He also is a person who is a convert because of Paul's ministry. So you got a wealthy Christian who's living near Colossia, and he is a convert because of Paul's ministry. So who is Onesimus? Well, first of all, Onesimus is a slave. His, lay, his, uh, his name actually means useful one. And some people debate whether or not that was his original name or maybe his master gave him that name, useful one. We don't know, but that's what the name Onesimus means. What we do know is later in the history of the church, we find an individual who was a bishop at Ephesus named Onesimus. We don't know if it was him, but we do know that that label or that name was important to the church, apparently, uh, enough to record. Also, what we know about Philemon is Paul says he was once very useful. I mean, Onesimus, he says to Philemon, he was once very useful to you in a singular kind of way. He was your slave. But I want you to know now, Philemon, he's useful to both of us. Paul considered Onesimus to be a partner in ministry with him. He not only just ministered to his needs in slavery, but he seems to imply that Onesimus could be a great ambassador for the gospel. That's what we know about Onesimus. Now, third question. What was the nature of slavery in the first century Roman culture? As abhorrent as it seems to us, the historical reality is this. People didn't think much of it. I mean as a moral issue. Didn't think it a moral issue at all. It was an accepted part of the culture. For a first century person, whether Christian or not, slavery was seen as necessary as powering up your lights or having a vehicle. It was just standard operating procedure. Now, again, that seems amazing to us, but that's the way they thought about slavery. 
sometimes we diminish our history of slavery by saying that our history of slavery was racial and more excessive than the history of slavery in the first century Rome or Greece. Well, one part of that is true. In Rome, it wasn't racial slavery, but it was no less terrible for the slave. Why? Because the slave was the property, the chattel of the master. And the laws concerning slavery and what you could do to your slave were very loose. There were some laws where a slave could appeal to a magistrate, but almost never happened because you knew what the consequences would be. You were in a position of absolute powerlessness, and the master had absolute power. There were masters who actually took their slaves in and adopted them as their own children. There were masters who freed their slaves, even though the slave couldn't afford to free him or herself. But the reality is slavery was very, very harsh. Let me read you this description. A slave was not a person, but a living tool. A master had absolute power over his slaves. He could box their ears or condemn them to hard labor making them, for instance, work in chains upon his lands in the country or in a sort of prison factory. Or he may punish them with blows of a rod, the lash, or the knot. He could brand them on their foreheads if they were thieves or runaways. And in the end, if they proved to be irredeemable, he could have them crucified. That was legal. That was the world that Philemon and Onesimus and Paul lived in. So what's the request in that context? We know what slavery is like. We know who Philemon was. We know who Onesimus was. Here's the request. Philemon, I want to keep Onesimus. He's a dear brother. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to send him back to you. He's been important to me in my imprisonment. And I think he could be an ambassador for Christ. But when I send him back, Philemon, I want you to receive him no longer as a slave but as a brother. Furthermore, he says, I want you to receive him as if he were me because he is part of my heart. That's the way I want you to receive him back, Philemon. See, Paul wasn't asking for a begrudging forgiveness for something Onesimus had done against Philemon, which he apparently had. If nothing else, he ran away, but it seems that he may have even stolen some things from his master. Paul is not saying, I want you, I know you don't want to do it, I get it, it might be hard for you, I just want you to obey me and take him back. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, I want you to create a royal welcome party for him when he comes back. 
Do, do any of you think of the prodigal son? That's what I think of when I read that. Paul said, welcome him like you would me. It would have been a celebration if Philemon knew Paul was coming. I don't know if you've ever experienced a royal welcome. Probably not. Well, it wasn't really royalty, but I have. And I'll never forget it. I was with some missionaries in Liberia that we've supported here for probably 35, 40 years. And we were making a trip to the northern part of Liberia. I could tell you about that trip, which was really harrowing, but we finally got there. And when we arrived, we went into this tiny little village. The house I stayed in, by the way, in the bedroom had bullet holes all in the walls. And I asked the pastor, well, what, this is your house, what's, he said, because all the people were killed in here. They had so many revolutions and all kinds of massacres. And so I slept in that room where people had literally been slaughtered. And so when we got there, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. We drove up in our car. And there was honking and dancing and instruments and palm fronds that had been intricately woven together to make an arch when I walked through. I was humbled. I felt silly, but I knew how much work had gone into the royal welcome. Paul says, I want you to accept Onesimus back like that. Do you realize what he's asking him to do? He's asking him to do something that the culture would have said, what in the world are you doing? Welcoming your slave, a runaway, back like that. Paul also puts a little footnote to it. He says, actually, I know that you may think that he owes you something. Whatever his debt is, place it on my ledger. I'll take care of it. You might say to yourself, how's he going to take care of any debt? He's a prisoner chained to a wall probably. Well, Paul probably had friends. He could raise money. Yeah, that's my thought. But that's not really what he meant altogether. Paul said, I'll pay his debt, but let me remind you of something, Philemon. You owe me your very self. In other words, you are in Christ because I shared Christ with you. So, I want you, if you feel comfortable in that situation, to apply the debt to my account. Of course, Philemon gets the message. So what's happening in this story? Well, there's all kinds of things. Tiny little epistle. But the first thing I want to acknowledge, and it's, it's, it's difficult to even say it out loud, is that Paul is not attempting to overthrow institutional slavery. He's not. Now, you might say, well, in a subversive way, he is, and I agree. As a matter of fact, in this particular book, he doesn't even name it as an evil. He could have, but he didn't. Of course, in 1 Timothy 1.10, he talks about slave owners, and that being a horrible evil. 
So by implication, he could have said the same here. What Paul is actually doing in trying, in, in trying to send this message to Philemon is not to get political and try to overthrow slavery as an institution. I, I've said before, but let me say it again. Paul couldn't give two hoots about the governance of Rome. He couldn't care less. His primary mission was to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to Christ followers and allow those Christ followers to transform the culture by following Jesus. So he says to Philemon, take him back, not as a slave, but as if it were me. Now here's what is happening in spite of the fact that it's not a direct challenge to institutional slavery, Paul is laying down a principle that subverts slavery and eventually overturns it as it relates to most of our history. And he did that with other words in other places where he said there is no such thing in Christ as a Jew or a Greek as a slave or a free, as male or female. We're all one in Christ. Don't make those distinctions as if they have some kind of distinction that categorizes people into positions of submission. We're all one in Christ. He's saying to him, in effect, he who was once considered by you a slave I want him to be treated like your brother. Let me put it differently. When he shows up, I want you to look at him and see the image of God in him. Let me put it another way. Philemon, if you do that and stare into his eyes and see the image of God, what does that mean about your relationship with him? If you or I stare into the eyes of anyone and see the image of God, what does that say about our relationship with him? How can we in any way abuse a person who carries the image of God? How could we abuse him or her for her status in society or for her race or for her ethnicity? How could we do that if we literally look into their face and see the image of God? Because to do that is to mar the image of God. Do you see the profound nature of that? You might say to me, oh, there you go again with the Christianese. A simple answer to racial problems, to ethnic problems, to gender problems. Just throw out the image of God phrase. You you know what that response sounds like to me? It sounds like somebody who doesn't have much of a robust doctrine of the image of God. The phrase image of God is not the problem. The understanding of what the image of God is the problem. If you can embrace the doctrine of the image of God and persecute another, you don't understand the image of God. So Philemon, take him back. 
and look into his face and see me and the image of God. So let me be more critical and ask this question. Why didn't Paul address the issue of slavery more directly? There are several reasons for that. Number one, had he started a slave revolt in the Roman Empire, every last Christian that he loved as himself would have been annihilated absolutely wiped off the face of the earth. That's what Rome did to slave revolt. So Paul has got to weigh things, doesn't he? How should I address this? What should I do? The second reason that Paul doesn't address this issue more directly as we might and have is because he didn't live in a democratic form of government at all. There was no ballot. There was no influence by the populace except through revolt. You didn't have the options that are available to you and I to enact social change. No wonder he didn't address it more directly. He would have lost his head even sooner. We would only had half New Testament documents. So what did he do instead? of addressing this institutional evil more directly. What he did was he introduced a principle that was the pathway to absolute deep reform, the principle of the image of God. And when that principle is played out, lives change. You might ask the question in another way, Why doesn't the Bible get more specific in addressing societal problems more directly? One reason, just think about this for a minute. Most of you know what I'm talking about. You pick your battles, right, when you're a parent? Yeah. You can't say everything. You can't correct every behavior. What you do is you try to focus on things in order to move the needle Perhaps that's one of the reasons that the Bible doesn't address every single societal issue directly. Or put it another way, we as persons just couldn't take it. Could you imagine if Jesus in the council with the disciples had told them all their problems? They would have given up, thrown their hands up in the air and said, I'm over. I'm done with this. I can't follow you anymore. It's too much. But he didn't. We have a history in the New Testament that is an unraveling of the will of God that we didn't see, at least overtly in the Old Testament. And Jesus infers this, which on one occasion he said, oh, Moses said that because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, you couldn't take it. But I'm telling you now, maybe that's one of the reasons that the Bible doesn't address everything so specifically. I think there's a third reason the Bible doesn't address everything as specifically as we would like. Because that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a book of rules. And the Bible is not a book of rules. 
The Bible is about principles, relationship between God and humanity. That's what the Bible is about. And then, led by the Spirit of God, you figure out how to apply the principle. It would be a little bit like a child who actually poked his sibling with a fork or a needle or worse, a knife. And the parent said to the child, what in the world are you doing? And the child's retort was, well, you told me not to hit him, but you didn't tell me I couldn't poke him. Right? That, that's us. God can't tell us enough things for us to get it straight. He gives us principles. And he says, as adults and as Christ followers, by the power of the Spirit, you figure it out. I'll give you counsel. You follow me. God wants us to mature in the application of biblical principles. The examples are so numerous. We, we could spend a whole hour talking about them, but just quick flurry. There's no direct statement in the Bible about abortion or euthanasia. But there certainly is statements about the sanctity of life. There's not every single declaration concerning human sexuality in the Bible. There are many, but not all. But what you have is a principle. Sexual activity is reserved for a husband and wife in a monogamous relationship for life. Make the application. The Bible doesn't give us any specific form of government certainly doesn't suggest political parties. It doesn't tell us that capitalism is good and socialism is bad. We make those own, our determinations on our own in that regard. What it does is it tells us what the character of the king ought to be like. Translate rulers. What it does is tell us how we ought to treat our neighbors, and we hear the parable of the Good Samaritan. What it does, it says no matter what your form of government, no matter what your economic theory, the poor are to be protected. And that the immigrant is to be treated with charity. That's the principle of the Bible, some of them. Now, it's up to us to make the application. So what is that application? How should we address the issue of racial inequality in our society with scriptural principles? That's why we've had these conversations and we'll continue to talk about it and wrestle with it. It's not a statement about some political theory. It's a question concerning the image of God and how we're to respond to others. We're asking about a biblical principle. So how should we care for creation according to the principles of the Scripture? 
Good question. Worth talking about. So how should we love people with whom we disagree in the church and outside the church? Good question. Apply the principles. How should we live our life together? What is our best witness to the world? All good questions. Let's work hard to apply the principles. You notice I was short on answers. I don't want to give even one. I just want to ask us as a community of Christ followers to say to ourselves, this is an old worn out phrase. What would Jesus do? Right? Apply the principle. Let's pray. God, you are are very good to us. So grateful you didn't just give us a rule book. Because we're master manipulators and we would we would have done something foolish with that. If nothing else, we would have become legalists and we would have thought it was all up to us and that somehow we were the righteous ones. And your word uh, takes us down a notch in that regard over and over again. Well, you gave us our scriptural principles, the words of Jesus, the words of the apostles, the clarion call of the prophets. And uh, you ask us to apply the principles in our life and our, our principles... They're malleable, they, they, they fit every circumstance, they fit every culture, but we need your wisdom to apply them. So give us your wisdom, Lord, and give us your grace, a grace that realizes that we're gu- guilty right now of cultural sins and hundred years from now, they'll look back and say, really? They called themselves Christians. Help us to realize that we have blind spots and we're guilty of personal sins, sometimes unwittingly. And help us to remember that in relationship to others, that they're in the same situation, so we give them grace. And at the same time, we challenge them to follow Jesus. Thank you for your word, Lord. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May we apply it. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.